Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Charles Bush. I wish all of you, every one of you could have a hit Broadway show. It's the most, <laughs> it is the most fabulous feeling ever. That and more. But before that, I just want to give a big shout out to some of our newest Patreon members, Line Handler, Courtney Pollock, Chris Moore, Madeline Erasmus, Kathleen Munson, Keenan Farrar, and Lynn V. That was my best Danish pronunciation there. Uh, oh my gosh, we are so deeply grateful to all of our Patreon members. As you know, things are really rough for us right now. We are going to be probably applying for government assistance and see how that goes. And we are just dead set determined to keep keep it going to to you know do do whatever it takes day by day week by week to keep putting the podcast out there and we keep putting stuff on patreon as well we've just put up a mix of oh i don't know how many it was but it was a bunch of anecdotes that risk listeners sent in to us and risk storytellers that we haven't featured on the free podcast you know, we got so many that we couldn't put them all on. So they're still fabulous and fascinating to listen to. We're putting up an interview between me and Michelle Walson, who co-created Risk with me in the earliest days and remains one of our most cherished storytelling coaches on the team. We put up bonus stories every week. We uh, have ad-free versions of the episodes that are attainable there. There's a lot to find at patreon.com slash risk. And if you love the show, we're very, very much relying right now on that, <laughs> on the support that's coming to us through that avenue. Uh, you can also donate at any time to paypal.me slash risk show for a one-time sort of donation. We love the risk community. It really is, you know, less like fans and more like community, which you, you feel it at the live streams. You feel it at the live shows when we are able to do shows in front of an audience. Uh, speaking of live streams, our next one is 9 p.m. Eastern on Saturday, June 20th, Michelle Carlo and Julie Polk and Kendra Cunningham will be there. Also, I think Harold Cox will be there. It's going to be a great night. It's June 20th at 9 p.m. Eastern, and you can get your tickets. They're pay what you wish at risk-show.com slash tour. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Now here's the show.
Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is Lafayette Gilchrist behind me now, and we are calling this week's episode Turnaround because that's exactly what we, the people, are up to right now. We're beginning to turn things around in this country. It's going to take us the rest of our lives, but we have the love. We have the community. We have the creativity. We have the most benevolent energy that the universe provides within us and together working through us. I'm talking this way because I had one of the most extraordinary experiences I've ever had just yesterday. Uh, Several days ago, I was on social media and I saw that my friend, Kala Mendoza, was seeking volunteers to come help with a rally and march that he was helping to facilitate. That is a person you should look up, by the way. Kala is on Twitter and Instagram at K-A-L-A-M-E-N-D-O-Z-A. Anyway, I know that Kala is extremely experienced as an activist with, you know, an enormous wealth of wisdom gained from a lifetime of doing this good work. And when I saw what this particular rally and march was going to be about that he was talking about, I knew how important it was. The rally and march were going to be built around the hashtag Black Trans Lives Matter. If you don't know, uh, the Stonewall Rebellion in 1969 that kicked off the modern queer rights revolution was truly led by people of color and black trans folks. So much queer culture is the creation of black trans folks. And yet, they are one of the most vulnerable populations in this country. Two black transgender women, Dominique Remy Fells in Pennsylvania and Raya Milton in my hometown, Cincinnati, were killed just last week. Now, one of the all-time favorite stories for fans of Risk, you know, one of the classics, is Another Saturday Night by T.S. Madison. Now, as you know, the the T.S. in Maddie's name stands for trans. But it's always struck me that Risk fans seem to remember that story as being hilarious and charming. And for good reason. I mean, Maddie herself is so lovable. To know Maddie is to love her. And she's charmed everyone with every story she's told on Risk. But I feel like a lot of Risk fans just didn't know how to confront how bleak the end of that story really was. You know, in that story, Maddie is raped at gunpoint, and then she knows that she cannot count on the cops or the legal system to protect her or procure justice. She knows she's just going to have to go on living in a city where her rapist is roaming free and may well come back for her because she knows that as a black trans woman, she won't be treated like a citizen by the cops or the legal system. You know, in that story, the cops show up and immediately misgender her, make fun of her. Right away, she knows 
She's got to find a way to escape their bullshit, having just escaped this rapist. You know what? We're going to rerun that story in the uh, Black Lives series that we're running on Thursdays. We can run it on this Thursday. But it gets to why I think what we do here at risk is important. As a cisgendered white guy, that story was kind of paradigm shifting for me to hear. Because in the nitty gritty of Maddie's actual lived experience, I heard about things that I would never have to consider or worry about in my own life. Remember my story about being gay bashed? Uh, it was on the episode called Queer. That story has a happy ending because the cops were so proactively helpful to me, this white guy. They drove me around in their car on the hunt for the guy who assaulted me and arrested him right in front of my face. Now, in my story, I got punched in the face. But in Maddie's story, she got raped with a gun to her head. And compare the endings to those two stories. It's insane. So, when I saw that my friend Kala was organizing what he called... Uh, white accomplices to be doing things like stopping traffic and helping protesters who might need assistance or getting between the cops and people of color if there were any tensions that arose there. I thought, yeah, you know what, fuck it, I should really do this. I have this philosophy that we should always be asking what we can be doing for the more vulnerable. <laughs> but I am not gonna lie. <laughs> <laughs> I was a nervous wreck. <laughs> I didn't tell anyone how nervous I was, but man, I was outside my comfort zone. You know, directing traffic? With my ADHD, I get confused about where I am just like two blocks from my own apartment and then de-escalating tension with the police. I mean, I'm terrible with confrontation. So I was literally shaking a bit with nervousness at the beginning of the day yesterday, if I'm being completely honest. But I teamed up with this triad of other white accomplices. And one of them was a gal with a lot of experience with protests and marches. So she immediately became my hero. <laughs> I was so grateful for her. Now the rally was at the Brooklyn Museum. And by now, I hope that you've seen the photographs Within like 15 minutes of this thing starting, myself and the other two people in my triad were like, holy shit, this is enormous. Are there going to be enough of us volunteers? It, it, it was both unbelievably thrilling and very daunting. There were at least 15,000 people who showed up right on time, all wearing masks and using hand sanitizer, by the way. But my triad, the first thing we had to do was start getting people to stop exiting the subway station by the museum because there wasn't any room left to get out of the subway at that end. The place was so packed. So we're doing crowd control. And at the same time, we're worried about getting lost in the crowd. But then it turned out that all that nervousness was for naught because of course, these 15,000 people came out from a sense of solidarity around compassion and love for one another. The only thing 
worth actually worrying about was, will the police start some of their bullshit? Or will hateful agitators start some of their bullshit? But that didn't happen. It was just a beautiful, historic day. And now one of the gals in my triad was also a medic who got separated from the other medics she was supposed to be with. So mostly I just spent the rest of the day helping her walk around asking anyone who looked like they might be tired or dehydrated or whatever hey are you okay you need anything which which it turns out is just fun everyone appreciates that now what i didn't know until after the fact was that this whole thing was partly the brainchild of someone else who has been on risk fran Torado told a hilarious story about a night of sexual adventures in Brooklyn on the podcast a couple years ago. We got to know Fran first from the queer podcast, Food for Thought. But Fran tweeted out after the rally in March, he said, 10 days ago, West Dakota, West is a friend of Fran's, called me with an idea, a Brooklyn-based protest creating space and action for black trans lives. So it was Fran and West who got that whole ball rolling in 10 days. And I have to say, they're heroes. And Kala Mendoza is a hero. And every one of those black trans folks and allies who spoke at the rally, Raquel Willis, Cyan Dora Show, Ian Field Stewart, Junior Mint, the sister of Laylene Polanco, a trans woman who died from neglectful abuse on Rikers Island, also very recently. All of these folks are heroes and we should keep right on following their lead because yesterday was a shining example of the good that is left in this country, the good that we must all join in if we hope to overcome all of this darkness coming at us. You know, I took a little risk by volunteering to be there and man, what a huge gift that was to have been there. Follow these good leaders, folks. Let's keep it going. Oh, and I would be remiss if I didn't end this segment by saying, if you, dear listener, know of any black trans folks who might want to share their story on this show, we can help. We help people prep and share their stories. I am at Kevin at risk dash show.com let's get to the stories today now in a little bit we're going to hear from charles bush the legendary downtown playwright and drag act and tony nominee i mean charles is just the best just an incredible performer and talent and it's such a thrill to have him on the show. He did our live stream. As you know, the audio quality on our live streams when we feature them here on the podcast are a little sketchy sometimes as they're recorded over Zoom. But before Charles, we're going to hear from Edith Gonzalez. I can't quite recall how many times Edith has been on the show at this point, but she is a storyteller we love dearly in and around the New York City area. <laughs> you can find her on Instagram at egon.the.great. Here she is now. This is Edith Gonzalez with a story we call 
The Cool Kids. Thank you. I was a cheerleader in high school. You might be able to tell. And in most places in America, that would automatically mean that you're one of the cool kids. But I grew up in New York City, and I went to an arts high school, public high school, on 57th Street and 2nd Avenue. And being a cheerleader was not a super cool thing to be doing. We didn't have a football team. Um, this, my lack of coolness was also compounded by the fact that I am a complete and utter science and math nerd. So for my freshman and sophomore year, I was very active in cheerleading. But I also, I mean, the cool kids in my school were the theater arts kids. Yes. Um, so I desperately wanted to be in this cool group of kids. But, you know, I was... I came from a very conservative Catholic family, so all my friends were the children of artists and bohemian and very, very cool to me in, in ways and experiences outside of my little neighborhood in Jamaica, Queens. So I was just like, oh my God, these kids are so awesome and sophisticated. And I thought in my sophomore year that I would look really cool. And I had these red jeans that I had pegged them so tight that I had to like force my feet through them and then lay on the bed with pliers to zip them up. And I had this blue and white striped t-shirt, like a French Navy t-shirt. And I thought it made me look like Audrey Hepburn. But in fact, it made me look like a flagpole with an American flag and a completely calm day because I was very, very skinny. And I had these thick little Coke bottle glasses that all reliable scientists will wear. So not exactly my stellar good-looking years. Okay, so our school was on 57th and 2nd Avenue, and it had one building right on the corner. And then next door to it was an elementary school. There was no campus. So after lunch, you weren't allowed to leave the building. They had this one-story building that connected the two schools. And on that flat tar roof, they erected these huge chain-link fences and sort of a no-man's land that separated the high school kids from the elementary school kids. And they called it the terrace, but it actually looked more like a minimum security prison. And we would go there, out there after lunch. So during the sort of ending days of my sophomore year, I was hanging out a lot with the theater arts kid and there was this one girl and her name was Blair and she had black hair like long black hair and like flashing black eyes and she had this reputation for being really wild and I thought how can I get some of that and I would hang out with her and she was always super nice to me and we were in a bunch of shows together but every time after lunch we'd walk up onto the terrace there would come a point in the conversation where she would just be like peace out and walk over to the cool kids in the corner who were standing there smoking and it was clear I was left to walk over to like the mathletes and the younger classmen so I was like curses so my friend Kim and I both lived in Queens and we'd ride the Q60 bus back home and I was just like oh, what the hell so my junior year starts and Kim and I are riding the bus into school and she says ah I have figured out what the issue is for you and your quest to be cool the problem is, you have this reputation for being a really, really good girl. 
okay. Now, I had this reputation because I was. I had zero experience. I never had a boyfriend. Like, I had no sexual experience. I had very little experience in anything out in the world. So I thought, okay, I need to do something, something shocking, something radical. So first thing I did was I cut my hair. And I cut my hair into this really slicked back, kind of curly front, David Bowie androgynous thing. And I thought, if I can't be this sexy, curvy girl, then I'm going to take the whole thing into that David Bowie direction. And I started to wear skinny ties like I was in the jam or something. And so I was like, okay, I'm radical. I got contact lenses. And I start my school year, and I just decide every other word out of my mouth is going to be fuck. So I start like, fuck this, and fuck that, and blah, blah, blah. And the problem is I have to turn it off when I go home because I once said the word fork too emphatically and my mother smacked me in the back of the head. So there's a line I'm walking. And um, so then I'm like, okay, I'm going to try and smoke at school. I have asthma. It was a disaster. So... I'm there, and I'm sort of on the edge, but I'm feeling like, okay, maybe, you know, everybody knows that I'm in the advanced trigonometry class, and that I'm going to be taking calculus ahead of schedule the next semester, and it's like, okay, I just don't know what I'm going to do. When one day, this guy, who we're going to call Larry, he was a senior, and he was like the ultimate guy. He was very rock and roll, and he wore these Led Zeppelin t-shirts, and he had feathered hair and a puka shell necklace. So one day, Larry says to me, theater arts guy, he says, hey, um, third period, do you want to go hang out in the back of the theater? Now, this is code for do you want to make out with me? Because it was a commuter school, kids are coming from all over the city to go there. It wasn't like a neighborhood where you're hanging out with people. So you didn't go actually on a date. You cut class to actually date someone at school. So I'm thinking, this is awesome. Yes, first of all, yes to that question. And third period, I have gym. But because I'm a cheerleader, I'm exempt from gym. So I'm not even going to get a demerit. I will not get detention for cutting gym. So I'm like, yes. So third period, I go. And the theater has a broken door. So the theater arts kid had jimmied one of the doors of the auditorium theater for our school so that it's broken so you can always sneak in and hide when you're cutting class. Awesome. So I go down and I get this thing open and this theater is completely dark so it's like this like I can't see you it's it's pitch black in the theater and and I start to sneak down the aisle of the theater and I'm just trying not to fall over anything and be really clumsy whatever so I get there I get up to the stage and I get behind the stage and behind stage there's this big couch with like this ugly brown tweed upholstery and it is completely disgusting because it is being used for exactly what you think it's being used for. And it's just, ugh, now it gives me shudders. And he's there and he's got his cool necklace and his hair and he's fabulous and he's there waiting for me. And there's just the little lights on that are behind the stage that prevent actors from tripping over each other when you know they change scenery or whatever. And so we get on the couch and we start kissing and as we're kissing, You know, my logical brain kicks in, and I'm thinking, he seems really well-practiced at this. I wonder how many girls he's had back here kissing him on this couch. And if I'm really trying to make an impression, kissing him on this couch is really not going to do it. 
So I'm like, what can I do? What can I do? And I start thinking about my bus rides with my friend Kim, because even though she's a virgin, she has had a boyfriend for a year. So she's been giving me sex tips in a really loud voice in the afternoons on the bus ride back to Queens. So I'm like, okay. So I leap up and he leaps up and he's like, oh my God, did I offend you? Like, what did I do? And I'm like, no, no. And I grab the couch and I begin to drag it across the stage scratching the floor horribly on the stage, the wooden stage. And I get it to the middle of the stage, and then I go to the lighting board, and I click on one spotlight to just on the couch. And I stand over there, and I just sort of wait for him. And he's like, wow, okay, here we are in this dark theater and this illuminated couch on stage in a theater with a broken door. So he comes walking over, taking off his t-shirt, and I'm like, that's right. So we start kissing again, and we're making out on the couch, and I think, I'm going to give my first blowjob. <laughs> Except I have never done anything like this before. Um, this is my first time even kissing somebody, so I'm just, all I have in my head is my friend Kim's voice giving me the instructions on how you're supposed to do this. <laughs> And it is unbelievably unsexy. I tried to get his belt off, and it felt more like, you know, when somebody tries to pull a tablecloth out from under the dishes in a magic show and everything crashes to the floor, it was kind of like that. It was uh, spastic and whacking myself in the head with the belt. It was bad. And then getting his jeans unbuckled and trying to get his jeans down and not really knowing, like, should he be naked? Should I get his shoes off? Like, I just didn't know what the hell to do. So I just kind of got them down just sort of enough, and sort of like kissing on him, trying to be sexy. It was, it was probably the least sexy thing I've ever done in my life. And then all I can think of is, okay, here are the instructions. You have to make sure that your teeth are covered. You have to make sure that your mouth is very moist. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I begin to do perform this um, act on Larry when all of a sudden I'm like, oh my God, wait, the step is you're supposed to tell him that he has to say something if he's about to climax. So quickly, I pull away from him, and just then, all over his chest, all over his puka shell necklace, into his feathered hair. And just then, the bell rings. And I'm like, I have calculus. Gotta go. And I grab my book bag, and I run out of the theater. So... A couple of days later, I'm talking with Blair. I see her at lunch, and we're going up to the terrace. And as we get up to the stairs and we're walking out onto the terrace, at the point where normally our paths would diverge, she almost begins to herd me like a sheepdog and a little wayward sheep and doesn't break her conversation but sort of steers me over to where the cool kids are hanging out. And I think, yes, I've done it. This is awesome. Except I very quickly realize that he has never told anyone. And I think it must be something else. Maybe it's my newfound confidence that I can follow directions in a very high stakes situation. <laughs> so I become one of the theater arts kid. I never get a leading role because I can't sing for shit graduate high school, go about my life. About 20 years later, 
I have a PhD. I'm a scientist. I never became an artist either. And I'm, I've dropped my kid. I'm living in Long Island. I dropped my kid at daycare. I'm rushing through Penn Station trying to get to my office at the Museum of Natural History. I stop in to buy a cup of coffee. And this guy with great rock and roll hair comes walking up to me. And I'm like, holy crap, it's Larry. And he's like, hey, how's it going? And we get into that conversation with somebody you haven't seen in 20 years and have not even thought about for 20 years. And, and he's like, yeah, do you remember that day? And I'm like, oh, standing there in my jeans and my still wearing my Mariner's nautical striped t-shirt, my hair in a ponytail and my thick little Coke bottle glasses. And I'm like, yes, I do remember that day. And he says that it was the most erotic experience of his life. <laughs> and I went like, oh, yeah. Maybe I do still have a little of that David Bowie swagger, after all. And then he confesses that he had never considered sex as performance prior to that day. And it altered his career plans. He had spent the last 20 years producing porn. Went shopping, got a haircut. Welcome to the 80s. Very sharp. Thanks. Look, what a fox. Dresses like Elvis Costello. Looks like the karate kid. I'm gonna get him. <laughs> Can I be totally honest with you? Your touch is the reason why I went through puberty. I was wondering, uh, do you have plans yet for Saturday night? Well, alone at last. Why are you smiling like that? Because it's party time. Let's dance. Let's get crazy. Let's get drunk. Let's get naked. Being in quarantine has made me ungrateful and depressed, I guess like most of us. But something happened about three weeks ago that changed my perspective. It just gave me something to be excited about. I got a text from my daughter, and it was in all caps, so I knew it was really important. It said, Mom, 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 there's a show on Hulu that I think is about that pink lady thing you always talk about. It's called Mrs. America. Okay, so when I was 10 years old, I went in a station wagon and then on a bus from Dallas to Austin with my sister, my mom, and our neighbors across the street. It was a, a family with a mother and four daughters. We went to Austin, Texas to protest the Equal Rights Amendment. <laughs> I don't even know where to begin about that. I just want to say that I've been looking for information about this forever. And every time I tell people about this experience, they look at me like I'm from another planet because how could that be real? Who would protest the Equal Rights Amendment? Well, I have a memory of going to Austin, having signs that said stop ERA, marching around, and we had 
baked goods with us that we brought and we all had on pink dresses and I remember being really excited to make sure this horrible ERA thing didn't pass because if it did I was told that I would have to go to war with all the boys and I wouldn't get to raise my own children when I grew up and it was trying to wreck the American family and I believed that I mean my mom believed that because that's what she was told and you know the Jarzinkas the family that went with us they were Catholic and we were Church of Christ so this never happened I knew it was important if we were hanging out with Catholics oh my god and so I have this horrible memory of this thing. I mean, I, actually, it's not a horrible memory. It's a pretty good memory. I, I remember being proud because my mom was proud. And I remember people looking at us weird. And I remember people taking the baked goods. But it's so foggy. I wasn't sure it was all true. And then I start watching this Mrs. America series. on. It's I think it's FX on Hulu. And you know what? All of my memories are correct. Come to find out that the Phyllis Schlafly Stop ERA movement had a branch or it joined with a branch in Fort Worth, Texas that was the Pink Ladies. And I was part of that when I was a kid. And I wanna say to America, I'm really sorry. I mean, I know it wasn't my fault. Uh, I was doing what my mom told me, but holy Christ, I'm so sorry. <laughs> that I just can't believe it, that I was part of that. Please welcome to the virtual stage, Charles Bush. Oh, hello there. Okay, well, here's my story. 2001 was the best of times, the worst of times. And I suppose it was something of a surprise to a lot of people in the New York theater community. And a bigger surprise to me that I would actually have a, a hit show on Broadway the tale of the allergist's wife. Now, I'd had for the previous 15 years a perfectly fine career as the uh, leading lady in drag of my off-Broadway comedies, but somehow now I was just this completely different person. And, and I have to say, it was thrilling. I'll never forget the day that the marquee went up at the Barrymore Theater, and uh, it was just pouring rain, torrential rain, but that didn't stop me. I stood in front of the marquee. I stood to the right of the marquee, the left of the marquee. I just couldn't believe that I was seeing my name written by Charles Bush on a, on a Broadway marquee. I wish all of you, every one of you could have a hit Broadway show. It's the most, <laughs> it is the most fabulous feeling ever. All right, it's now 10 months into the run. I mean, it's just, things are just marvelous. One morning I wake up and I'm almost propelled out of my bed with this thing. Pain goes beyond just a kind of rush across my back and down my arm. It was like I was hit by a tsunami. When somewhat uh, subsided, I thought maybe in my sleep I pulled a muscle. Maybe, I don't know. I'm not too bright in some ways. So, I called a, a chiropractor that I knew who worked nearby where I live in the village, dragged myself over to his office, and he didn't really ask me anything about what I was experiencing, but he cracked me and 
four different places and sent me on my way. And, you know, over the course of the week, I started feeling better and kind of sort of forgot about it. But then gradually, I don't know, I was just feeling so enervated and weak and, and I began losing weight. And at first I thought it was kind of marvelous. But then at a certain point, there were no holes left on my belt. I don't know. I, I never went to a doctor. I'd had a checkup 10 years before. And I don't know. I was just so afraid that somehow if they poke at you enough, they'll find something. And so I didn't. Then I got distracted because uh, I was nominated for a Tony Award for Best Play. And oh, my God. I mean, I never thought that was going to happen. And I, I didn't win. But I, I, and I don't know why I didn't win because... I was nominated opposite these kind of unknown people, um, the August Wilson, Tom <laughs> Stepard, you know, and, and the winner was this little play called Proof. You know? But it, it was so thrilling just being part of the whole circus of the Tony Awards. It, it was really cool. But then I kind of went back to focus on this way I was kind of deteriorating. And I was having all sorts of intestinal issues, which I'm not going to go into. And, uh, and losing weight, and, and things got so bad, finally, that I uh, one morning, I spoke to my friend Barry, who's the allergist to my play, was inspired by it, and I was telling him all these symptoms I was feeling, and I guess what I had told him concerned him, so he put me on hold, and then when he got back to me, he said that, he said that his friend, a wonderful young gastroenterologist at Weill Cornell, would see me if I left right that minute. So I went over to Wild Cornell and I see this young doctor and tell him what's going on. And he said, well, why don't we just give you a kind of a checkup? So he listens to my heart and I see his face is rather disturbed. And, and he, he says, are you aware that you have a very pronounced heart murmur? And I said, well, you know, I never remember whether it's my sister or me that has a heart murmur. <laughs> so he, he said, I, I think we need to send you to the fourth floor for an echocardiogram. I go to the fourth floor and the waiting room is just filled with people. It was very busy and they just rushed me right through. I thought it was because I was a celebrity. Being nominated for a Tony Award and having a hit Broadway show, that'll do it to you. <laughs> so I, I go into the examination room and they hook me up to the different electrodes and where they can follow your heart on the screen. And slowly this little examination room begins filling up with medical personnel and they're all watching the screen and whispering to each other. And I'm thinking, Oh no, I am in trouble. I am in big trouble. And I was in trouble. So when we finished, they asked me if um, I have someone, a close relative, someone who could come join me. And uh, my partner, Eric was out of town. He'd written a book and he was in Arizona publicizing his book. So I thought, well, my sister, Margaret, who I'm so close to, and she just lived across town, she could come. And I was a little concerned about calling her because we're almost empaths with each other. We're so connected that we really can feel each other's emotional states without a telephone call. And I didn't want to scare her. So when I kind of rehearsed a little bit, and when I got her on the phone, I, I said, oh, the, Margaret, the, the cookiest thing just happened. And she immediately <gasps> knew something was up. So she rushes over to the hospital and they have us, Margaret and I seated in this doctor's office. And there were two doctors facing us. One was the cardiologist who was this very just 
adorable kind of Katie Couric young mom type. <laughs> and then the, uh, the surgeon, who is this very handsome guy and is still in his green scrubs, everybody at Wild Cornell is camera ready. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's like you're on a medical TV show. Everybody is gorgeous. So first they asked me, Did, has anyone in your family had heart issues? And Margaret and I looked at each other and we said, well, our mother died when she was 41 of some kind of heart problem we never really exactly knew. And then the cardiologist said to me, have you recently experienced some very intense pain? I said, no. Oh, three months ago, three months ago, I woke up with this big rush across my back and down my arm. And, and you know, they were kind of looking at each other, you know, we, we have a character here. <laughs> and, and so then they explained that I had had aortic aneurysm and that my whole aorta was ripped open and just held by a slight bit of tissue <laughs> and, and that I had to check into the hospital. That meant I could not go home that I had to have open heart surgery immediately. Wow. Uh, I, I couldn't, couldn't believe it. And then I guess the surgeon, you know, I guess he, he was afraid that I might, you know, just want to get the hell out of there and maybe wait for a second opinion. So he squashed that and he said, Mr. Bush, what you experienced usually kills everyone within an hour. You were lucky once. You will not be lucky again. Wow. Mm. So I, I said, I believe you. I, I believe you. So I checked in. And first thing, I called um, my young friend, Carl, who had a key to my apartment. And I explained him the situation. I said, Carl, I need to get into my apartment, get my bedroom slippers, the book I'm reading that's on my nightstand, and no fewer than 10 plain chapsticks. No fewer <laughs> than 10, because this is no time for me to go cold turkey. <laughs> and he, he did what he, was, what he was told. And I checked in and... Uh, the, and Eric, my partner, you know, we, we filled him in on, he was on the next plane, joined us that night. The next day, you know, they give you all these, you know, tests and, and then the surgery was the day after. And there was, there was a chance that I might not get out of this one. And I had always been rather cavalier about death. You know, I, I had so many wild experiences in, in those 47 years. You know, oh, I had done so many things and outrageous things. And that I, I used to feel that, if, oh, if my number was up, I'd think, well, so long, suckers. I had it. But I'm, I got to tell you that when you think your number is up, you want more. You want more, more, more. You haven't had enough. The surgery went on for seven hours. And they gave me a bypass, a metal valve, a Dacron graft. I don't even wear Dacron. <laughs> I was, I've got Dacron inside me. I have to tell you, I don't remember anything of being in the ICU at all. I start remembering things when I was actually in my room. But even there, I was so doped up, you know, on painkillers that, that I was kind of in a rather jovial, benign haze. And when my first group of my close circle would come see me, um, my sister and Eric and our friend Kathy, they would come. I was rather pleasant. And, you know, and then they would leave and the painkillers would subside. And then Carl would come on the second shift. And I was just this demon. I was just, I was in really terrible pain and discomfort and depression. And, and so poor Carl, one afternoon, he had stopped by the gift shop in the, in the hospital 
and he saw those mylar balloons and he thought that might be kind of cute to bring me one. And he walked into the room and I don't know, it set off some madness in me. I was like, get that thing out! Oh, this is awful. You know, poor, poor guy. I, I was clearly out of my mind. And then the next, maybe the next day or a few days later, I had just sunk so low. I was, I was lower than the lowest platform of the L train. I was low. And, um, I somehow got myself out of the bed to get to the bathroom and I was connected to all these tubes. And I think the, the metal pole with you know the bag for fluids, and I got myself into the bathroom and, and did my thing. But then I, I don't know. I just ended up just collapsed on this bathroom floor, just sobbing, just sobbing. And, you know, I'm not really, I'm not really prone to depression. You know, I, I could get pretty, you know, grim when a play of mine would get bad reviews or flop. And, you know, in the theater, you know, we've got that hardcore baby, you know, and I, you know, it would just took a couple of weeks, pull myself up, but I was just, down for the count. And it seemed as if, you know, when you're in that situation, anything that you may have achieved or, or this person that you've constructed, it all kind of goes away and you're at some kind of essence of humanity that's very frightening, very alone. And then Carl showed up, somehow found me on the floor of the bathroom and took me up, put me into bed. And he had to do something because I really was at low ebb. And so uh, Carl said, I think we have to get you back on stage. I kind of shot him a look. And then he said, I, I think you and Julie Halston, who's my stage partner, the two of you have to co-MC a benefit for my new theater company. <laughs> and I was giving him a you know, gimlet-eyed look. And he, he, at his own peril, he continued. And he said, and we will have your costume designers, Batari and Case, build you the most beautiful gown you've ever worn. Is it, and, it, and it'll be some kind of loose caftan that, where you don't have to wear any kind of corset or foundation garment underneath it could constrict or be painful. The tragic news began to rise the bait. Carl, bring me my pencil and pad of paper. <laughs> I started sketching and I said it should be yards and yards of popsicle colored silk chiffon <laughs> you know and we had the costume made and it really was gorgeous this dress and uh, it was just a few days after I got out of the hospital I did the benefit with Julie and it was marvelous in a sense being back to my true self because in a way my truest self is who I am on stage, maybe even more than in real life. And we did it. But then after it was over, I kind of picked up where I left off with my depression and just uh, would lie on the sofa, uh, just in a kind of fetal position, um, just kind of gave up. But now they had told me at the hospital that most people, particularly men, you know, I guess we're the weaker sex in a way, that we... Uh, will go through a terrible emotional time and deep depression after heart surgery. And in four to six weeks, suddenly one morning you're going to wake up and bam, you're going to feel like you want to get back into life. Well, 
I'm here to tell you, six weeks to the day after the surgery, I wake up and I can see through the window that's beautiful sunny day. And I think, I, I, I feel marvelous. I want to get out. I want, I want to take a walk. I want to go to a movie. Oh, I, I just feel divine. That day was September 11th, 2001. Oh, God. Oh, God. <laughs> That's my story. So things could only get better from there. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, my goodness gracious. This is Risk, this is Anderson Pack behind me now, and we just heard from Charles Bush. Before that, a little anecdote by Risk fan Audrey Avera. Oh my gosh, uh, Audrey has been a fan of the show for the longest time, and it was so fun to include her little anecdote there about being as a child protesting the ERA. Good lordy. And before that, another interstitial sent in by Risk listener Olivia Oyama. Now, I've said it once and I'll say it again. Don't forget to tune in for the next Risk live stream, which is on June 20th at 9 p.m. Eastern. We've got a fantastic cast, Kendra Cunningham, Michelle Carlo, Julie Polk, and I think Harold Cox is going to be there too. Anyway, these live streams are just so wonderful. They're a great way to feel more connected during this social distancing time. And you get to see, as well as hear, the person sharing their story. And you get to hang out with us after the show for a little Q&A. It's a fantastic addition to an evening. Tickets are pay what you wish, and you can get them at risk-show.com slash tour. Our final storyteller on today's show told this next one at one of those Risk live streams, and boy, was it a doozy. This is Carissa Johnson 
who you can find on Instagram at C-H-A-R-S underscore Johnson. Here's Carissa now with the story we call Story of My Life. I was under the impression that we all want the best of life. So let's celebrate while we still can. Everyone, please welcome to the stage, Carissa Johnson! I first found out about my mom's autobiography a little over a year ago. We were emailing back and forth about other things, and she just casually dropped that she was close to finish writing her book. I was surprised. I had only ever heard maybe once or twice over the years that she was thinking about writing a book and had no idea that she was actually writing one, much less that she was nearly done with it. I was scared my brother and I were in it. I sent her an email back, asked her, wow, uh, is it about our family? Am I in it? Uh, If so, is there any way you can leave me out of it? And she replied, no, don't worry, Carissa, you're not in it that much. Um, And you look good. The story looks great. Your dad's read it and he loves it. That quickly changed to, uh, Carissa, you're in it too much, and it would take a year to rewrite it, and I can't take you out of it. I asked her if we could talk about it, if I could read the parts that I was in it. She replied, "Uh, no, it's in the printing process. People are waiting on it. You're being manipulative, and you've been spoiled for years. You being in the book is not up for discussion. I'm not changing it, and I'm not going to feel bad about it either. My dad chimed in at that point and said she was called by Yahweh to publish the book also. Uh, She was called by Yahweh to do a lot of things growing up. My brother and I were homeschooled. I was homeschooled the whole way through before COVID-19 made it popular. And uh, we moved out to rural Colorado when I was eight and my brother was five. My mom got into alternative health and uh, became a naturopath and a homeopath and started seeing clients and giving nutritional advice and remedies. She is really charismatic and sweet, and so people are drawn to her, and uh, she seemed to always have the answer. At some point, the lines between health and spirituality got really blurred, and uh, she started using spirituality in, in everything that she did. If you came to my mom for allergies, you would be given a homeopathic to help with the symptoms, but the root cause of your allergies was probably because you uh, needed to forgive your parents for something that you'd done when you were younger um, and the way that they treated you. If you had cancer, it was not really cancer, but it was parasites that would evaporate if you uh, prayed through whatever generational sin was passed down through your family. If you had severe asthma, like I did growing up, it wasn't because I was having an asthma attack. It was because it was a spiritual attack or because my grandmother looked at tarot cards and passed that generational sin down to me and I needed to repent and ask for forgiveness. When I continued to have an asthma attack, I wasn't given an inhaler. We weren't allowed to see doctors. I instead was told that I didn't pray enough or I didn't really mean it or that I didn't repent enough or that I didn't love Yahweh enough. Um, My dad eventually quit his corporate job. And uh, when I was in my teens, my parents started their own church. My brother and I grew up Christian, but this wasn't really enough for them at that point. So they took a blend of alternative health and Christianity and Messianic Judaism. 
an emphasis on Old Testament laws and following them, some charismatic practices, Zionism, and a dash of extreme conservatism and conspiracy theories. The group was made up of my mom's clients, and it was 40 to 50 people. And before we knew it, these were kind of the only people that we were ever around or got to see. Anybody else, any other family or friends was kind of cut out of our lives. So as my mom and I were emailing back and forth, I was scared that she was going to give this book to this group. And I, at this point, I wasn't in connection with most of them anymore. I'd moved to Chicago with my husband a few years prior, but some of these people were some of the people that were the only people that had known a good chunk of my life. She ended up mailing me the book and when I read it, I wept. It was a book of our childhood and my family and the stories were all rewritten. Not as I remembered them, um, but in a way that allowed her to find some kind of spiritual answer or um, new insight or wisdom and, and give that to whoever was reading the book. One story I remember that was included happened when I was 17 and my brother was 14. I walked out from my bedroom into the living room and he was there um, on the ground held down by 20 to 30 people from the group they were holding his arms and his feet and he was screaming and he couldn't get up and every time he screamed my mom was standing over him and she would yell something along the lines of that's not my son talking stop talking in the name of Yeshua you demon of, of antichrist or villain or rebellion or whatever it was Growing up, my brother was often the scapegoat and often demonized. He was just a normal kid, a normal teenager, maybe with some more angst because of how controlled we were growing up. But he didn't want to stay quiet, and he wanted his own voice, and you couldn't have your own voice in my family, so he got demonized for it. I processed everything differently from him. My brother fought for his voice, and I stuffed mine. I tried to keep the peace as much as possible. Often I was the golden child because I did what my mom wanted me to do. I helped her to pray, to discover insights. Um, it was all I'd known growing up and some of it I genuinely believed, but there was this additional pressure uh, in private. My mom would tell me that she was, that I was her best friend and that if I didn't do what Yahweh was telling her that I needed to do, that she was going to commit suicide, or that my brother or my dad would get witchcraft or voodoo or some demon on them and that they would die. So I shut up and I stuffed it. I wanted my family to survive. I loved my brother more than anyone and I wanted him to survive. Occasionally I would rebel and, you know, get my own share of being demonized or get silent treatment or some other punishment. But most of the time, I, I took those 87 vitamins a day she wanted me to. I fasted and prayed for a week from food as a 12-year-old or a 13-year-old or 14-year-old because that's what I was supposed to do. I would wake up at three every morning uh, during witching hour um, for nearly all of my teens to pray with her about 
whatever witchcraft was attacking our family. It was intense all the time. And it was always a matter of life and death. So I remember standing there in the hallway, seeing my brother and this group of people that I had trusted, all holding him down. And I tried to inch closer so that I could see his face. I caught his face and his, his gaze and I looked into his blue eyes and I saw how helpless he was. And my mom just stood over him, arms flailing, yelling, and I looked at him and everyone else was looking at her and following her lead. And I chose to stay silent. I didn't know what else to do. Later that week, my family was in the car, and um, at this point, my my brother really didn't care if they found out about stuff that he was doing that they wouldn't approve of, so he was listening to corn on his Discman, and um, didn't care if they heard, and they heard it, and my mom, of course, blew up, my dad pulled over into a parking lot, Everyone was yelling. He he opened my brother's door and ripped the headphones out of his ears and ripped them in half. And the discman fell on the ground and broke. And I mean, it was like disc, the discman was like our most prized possession back then. But he was yelling, and my mom was yelling, and people saw, and um, the cops showed up and. My brother told one of the cops um, to just shoot him right then and there because he just wanted to die. So in the book, my mom takes this memory and uh, says that my brother didn't want to be a good boy and that he was spiritually programmed by a witch who was targeting him, that it was my brother who called the authorities and that my brother not only said that he was going to kill himself, but that he was going to kill both of my parents and have it hired out. He was 14. She writes that when he was talking to the cops, she knew that um, my brother, it wasn't my brother speaking, it was a demon. Um, And that she was able to recognize this spiritually. My brother was so hurting that he wanted to die. And she made it into a story where He threatened to kill them, and she was the one that was able to figure out the solution spiritually. There are countless other stories like this in the book, all retold in some way to give some new spiritual insight. My mom actually gave the book to my brother for his 30th birthday as a surprise, as his gift, thinking that he would be so happy that he now has this book of of stories of him just being demonized. Both of us tried to confront them and talk with them about it. All we really wanted was a conversation about the book. And instead, we were told we were selfish or we were programmed by the occult. We ended up getting an email from my dad where he told us that how dare we get in the way of what Yahweh wanted to accomplish through this book and prevent this healing. And um, we should be thanking my mom for all the ways that she's saved us. At this point, it was clear the... uh, The book was more important to her than her relationship with her own kids. I ended up cutting contact with her and then my dad a few months after that. And it was one of the hardest things I've ever had to do. 
all I've ever wanted is just to have some kind of decent relationship with them. And I know that they care for us, but um, you couldn't have a relationship with them unless you were willing to give up your reality for theirs. And I wasn't willing to do that anymore. So I cut contact. I'd been grieving a loss of a relationship with them for years. So when I cut contact, I'd already processed through a lot of the grieving and it was actually just a lot of relief uh, that I don't have to expect an email or a call that's condemning and I don't have to deal with it. Since a year ago, I've just, I've had the space to process stuff that I've never been able to process before and to, to breathe and to be and write my own fucking story. Wow. Oh my goodness gracious. Carissa Johnson, everyone. No God. No light. No void. No sign. No dream. No sign can make me feel the way you made me feel. I was starting to run. I was starting to hide. I was starting to turn, turn and go for a ride. I was starting to look. I was starting to search. I was starting to be something I wasn't worth. We're dancing in circles while we're playing dead, playing dead. Don't know if you heard me or the voices in my head. That is all for this week's episode, folks. This is Hot Chip behind me now, and we just heard from Carissa Johnson. Don't forget that we have our live stream coming up on June 20th at 9 p.m. Eastern, and tickets are at risk-show.com slash tour. Be sure and follow Risk on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Risk Show. You can follow the Risk Podcast Fans Discussion Group on Facebook or our subreddit, Risk Podcast. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at the Kevin Allison. And there is so much that we have to offer at the storystudio.org. Two-day workshops, multi-week workshops, workshops where you can be learning online with an instructor and other students, videos that you can download and watch in your own time, workshops for storytelling performance, storytelling for personal growth, storytelling for business. Also, our corporate workshops are available at thestorystudio.org. Your own staff of your business might benefit from a workshop where everyone's sharing stories about 
your mission or your new project or uh, your new initiative, whatever it might be, that is all at thestorystudio.org. I also do one-on-one training with people at kevinallison.com. And if you would like a little cameo from me, a little video message personalized just for you or for your spouse or a friend of yours, whatever it might be, I'm at cameo.com slash the Kevin Allison. And finally, everything you need to know as to how to pitch us your own stories can be found at risk-show.com slash submissions. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. It's a fantastic addition to an evening. Tickets are pay what you wish. You can pay as little or as much as you want. And we hope to see if that brings more people out. Listen, if you know anyone who's like, ah, I don't know. I mean, I guess I'd be curious, but I don't know. Well, tell them, hey, you can check it out and not even pay anything if you don't want.